Welcome to ECDHR in conversation on political prisoners in the UAE. We hope that through this series, you will get a better understanding of the human rights situation in the UAE, which will cover freedom of expression, political prisoners, and the grossly unfair mass UAE-94 trial that imprisoned dozens of activists solely for exercising their rights to freedom and association. Our speakers will help us to reveal the truth about human rights violations in the UAE, given their personal experience and expertise on the subject. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Hello and welcome to ECDHR in Conversation podcast. In this new series, the European Center for Democracy and Human Rights presents a podcast on political prisoners of the United Arab Emirates. My name is Maria, and today we will be talking about the political context on the UAE, human rights defenders, as well as the state's repressive and undemocratic methods. The UAE is famously known for its big buildings and its beautiful beaches, and it is one of the most popular holiday destinations in the world. Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and the whole country in general is portrayed as a modern, progressive, and tolerant territory. But just a few kilometers away from the luxurious nightlife and the idyllic landscapes, Ahmed Mansour, a man who dared to speak his mind, was sleeping on a cold, hard floor in solitary confinement because the government refused to give him a mattress. In the same country where thousands of influencers from all over the world posted pictures on Instagram, a young woman tried to take her life, too tired of being locked up on her own and being denied her right to health. While the UAE finances impressive events around the world, men and women are beaten, their hands are cut with razor blades and suspended in the air in painful positions. Today, we're happy and honored to have Brian Dooley here with us, who will help us understand the situation on human rights in the UAE. Brian is a senior advisor at Washington DC-based NGO Human Rights First. He focuses primarily on human rights defenders and civil society in repressive regimes. Also, he is a prominent human rights voice on Twitter. Hello, Brian. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. Yeah, you're welcome. We would like to start with a general overview of the human rights situation in the UAE. So, Brian, maybe you could start by explaining to our audience why the international community is talking about human rights in the UAE. Sure. Um, the international community is talking about human rights problems um, in the Emirates a bit. Uh, it's not talking about it, of course, nearly enough. And I think one of the overall things which you touched on in your introduction, too, is the sort of two versions that people have uh, of the Emirates. Um, there has no, no question been a very successful campaign um, going on for many years of promotion by the uh, Emirati government um, about how attractive the, the government is for investment, including, of course, for tourism. Um, but they can't quite remove the, the stain of reality Uh, around the terrible human rights problems there and the overall sense of uh, repression within the country too. 
so for instance, let me talk about a, a brief conversation I had about a month ago with um, a friend of a friend of a friend of mine who's about to go to become a teacher in Dubai. And, um, you know, they're attracted by all the sorts of things that you would imagine, uh, opportunities to go and work somewhere different. They're going to teach English, um, high salary, pretty good lifestyle for somebody like that from Europe. But they know that there are risks involved with that, um, that there's a chance that if they fall foul somehow uh, of the government, that that can be very dangerous for them. And even if they don't, um, there is always that sense of unease that they can never quite relax. So this person is going to go and teach. Um, and frankly, the chances are they won't come into uh, direct contact with anything terrible while they're there, but they might, and they know that they might. And so I think this is fundamentally a failure of the huge PR campaign, which can buy all sorts of, uh, of good coverage, as we've seen, but it can't really ever completely eradicate the bad coverage because the bad coverage or the, or the bad issues are there and they're real and they never quite go away, even if they only pop up uh, sporadically. Yes, Brian, that's true. Whitewashing is a huge problem in the UAE and this is why with this episode we would like to expose all these severe violations of the United Arab Emirates. Do you think that with these strong peer campaigns, the UAE authorities are gaining more power or that it is working the other way around in the sense that they are shrinking due to the international pressure? I think the money that the Emirati government spends on, uh, essentially on PR, whether it's buying sports teams or it's giving to good causes or giving to um, political causes, um, works. I mean, they don't want to throw their money away on, on things that don't work. And I think that generally it's a positive thing for them. However, I, I think that, you know, people receiving that money like the money, and I don't think they necessarily um, like the Emirati government very much. Uh, and they certainly wouldn't be saying good things about the Emirati government without the money. And the money um, can become toxic. I'm, I, I worked in, uh, in Washington um, decades ago when it was totally acceptable for politicians, for instance, to take donations from tobacco companies. And then when the, um, the reputation of tobacco companies uh, started to switch, that money almost instantly became toxic. Everybody dropped it. Nobody wanted to be friends with the tobacco companies anymore. Just as you could see a day when nobody wants to be friends with the Emirati government, no matter how much money they've given them in the past. In fact, a couple of years ago, there's a, a think tank in Washington called the Center for American Progress. Uh, they returned money that they had taken from the Emirati government uh, because um, it didn't look good. And I think at some stage, you know, and, and this is also one of the things which people can do at an individual level, you know, they can, they can start saying, you know, that that, that, that brand is, is backed by the Emiratis. We don't, we don't want to go near that anymore. Uh, that matters. Um, sort of consumer power really matters. And so Emirati money could become as toxic as, uh, as tobacco money became. And I think as quickly too. My next question is, 
how the political system works in the UAE and why does the regime choose to violate human rights? It's pretty simple, really. I mean, there isn't much gray area when it comes to uh, politics or, or human rights uh, in the Emirates. Um, there really is no space for dissent, um, for functioning civil society, for human rights NGOs. It's not one of those countries where there is, there is limited but narrow space and you know, human rights activists have to always try to figure out the limits or the edges of what they can say and do. There just isn't any. I mean, in terms of comparable situations, it's, it's like um, the most repressive countries within the Soviet Union during the 1970s, 1980s. I mean, any small sign of dissent is immediately slapped down and crushed pretty violently and scarily. Um, so the political system, as much as it is, is there really just to serve the, uh, the ruling families. I mean, that's, that's all it's there for, to keep them in power, to keep them rich. Um, there is no political life as such. There's certainly no inclusive politics. Uh, like you see to varying degrees in some of the neighboring countries, um, which are also pretty, pretty uh, repressive, but you know, in some places, some of the time, it's possible to criticize the ruling elite and it's just not in the Emirates. I wonder, do you think if it's possible to have a human rights reform without a political change? The answer honestly is I, I don't know. I can, I can draw on you know, increasingly long experience now uh, that I'm getting older and see what other countries have done, um, other what I would call authoritarian countries. I think the best way to answer that question is the, the more oppressive the regime gets in the OEE, um, the more likely it is that the only um, way for it to be reformed is for it to be replaced. If it shows no give, if it shows no flexibility, um, you know, Darwin, as I understand, is often misquoted as saying, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, but those that can adapt the best. Um, whether he said that or not, I think that's true, that a regime needs to be able to be adaptive and flexible to be able to survive. And, and if it persists with, the, with, with being uh, rigid, um, no compromise, uh, won't reform, then, I, then it becomes brittle um, and, and breaks. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, within the, it's within the power of the Emirati government to reform. Um, and if you take away any ethical or moral consideration about whether or not it should, if you were to advise the Emirati government about um, a plan for its own sustainability, then I think it would be wise to advise it to bring in human rights reforms, that inclusive politics... Uh, makes for better long-term um, political stability. Uh, I mean, you know, no one really is asking that question of the Danish government or the Danish state. You know, do you really think that that, that this system can survive another two or three or four generations? Uh, because the assumption is it can, because it's a little bit messy and inclusive and uh, it allows dissent and it has these safety valves built in for 
opposition. The assumption is that that you know it, it may be ugly here and there, but it will survive on into the future. But but when you have a regime like um, the one in the Emirates, which is so closed and so rigid, then that question arises around stability and its long term long term sustainability. The UAE has ratified several international human rights agreements, including the Convention Against Torture or the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. I'm sure our audience is confused about why has the UAE government signed human rights international commitments and then it does not comply with them. How is it possible that a country violates this by international commitments and nothing happens? Is this a real example of the situation when economic interests prevail over human rights issues? It signs those commitments and ignores them because it can, um, quite simply. It signs them for show. It looks like it never has any real intention of living up to them. Um, when other countries and other parts or, for instance, the the international standards around uh, the UN and, and other people who speak for those things question the, uh, the OEA government about that. Um, they don't really have much of a response and I don't think they care that they have much of a response. Those things are done for show, uh, to pretend that they care about human rights. Um, there's no real intention there, obviously, uh, from the masses of evidence we have to really respect freedoms of, of expression, freedoms of association the rights of activists, the rights of civil society to exist independently, all that basic stuff that they uh, have signed up to and pretend they care about, clearly they just don't. And how is it that this has no consequences on the UAE? Um, that's a great question. Um, and, and frankly, the answer is because those things they've signed up to are ultimately unenforceable, um, which I think is a great indictment of the international political system, um, which has concentrated over the last generation or two to try to get countries, and I understand why, but try to get states to publicly commit to doing certain things to maintaining minimum standards, particularly around human rights. And the logic, of course, was that if countries did that publicly, then they would be less likely um, to renege on them. They would be uh, less likely to just ignore them. <laughs> Now, that supposes that a country has some uh, or a state has some innate sense of um, self-respect, um, of shame. Um, but clearly, many countries just don't. They sign up to these things with no intention ever of, uh, of living up to them. Moreover, The state's authorities alter the law to their own advantage by imprisoning human rights defenders with terrorist convictions. Could you please explain how do they use the national anti-terrorism law to imprison human rights defenders? Yes, so the UAE is, is not the only country that does this, and that's not to say that you know, that makes it less worse. Uh, it really doesn't. Um, but when a country wants to imprison a human rights defender for a long time, uh, it needs to invent some pretext to do that. Uh, it can't really, with a straight face, um, sentence someone to 10 or more years in prison for shoplifting or parking violation. 
Um, so they invent charges that the person has committed terrorist acts or they've done something really serious, like committed treason. Um, and when you write laws, as the, as the UAE uh, has, which defines terrorism so vaguely and uh, other cybersecurity laws so vaguely, then it's pretty easy, given that you have such, such a corrupt um, criminal justice system there too, it's pretty easy to pin any of these very serious charges on, on virtually anybody. Um, and so they use the excuse of torture, of cybersecurity, of you know, undermining the state, of being a threat to national security to justify giving these long sentences. And um, there, is no, there is no independent judicial system there. Um, the criminal justice system clearly doesn't meet the international standards that it's supposed to. And so that's, that's how it happens. Uh, the why it happens is again, because the, uh, the ruling families in the Emirates want it to happen and they're so powerful, they can make it happen. When talking about political prisoners in the UAE, the name UAE 94 often comes up in the media or in the international community. Could you please explain what this term means, who it refers to, and maybe introduce some specific cases, please? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, 10 years ago now, um, there was a sort of a, a contagious uh, political unrest across the region you know, with, uh, with mass protests in, in Tunisia, in Egypt, um, Bahrain, in Syria. And some countries didn't see that level of mass protest. Um, and the UAE, the UAE didn't. But its rulers, I think, were, were very afraid that they might. Um, they might see some, some real public dissent and public protest against the rule. Um, and so they moved to clamp down and to crush any potential dissent. Um, and so they brought um, uh, charges against 94 people, um, 69 of whom um, they convicted, and they invented um, a case against them that these people had been conspiring to overthrow the state. What's interesting often, and, and certainly in the case of the UAE, is that and it's, it's a little weird to understand, but when a government is so powerful, it has so much authority, and it tips into authoritarianism and dictatorship, um, it also is often pretty paranoid. And so, for instance, if, if we look at, say, the, uh, the regimes of, of Eastern Europe, um, of East Germany, during the 1970s and 1980s, super powerful, it's secret police, just as powerful as the secret police uh, in the Emirates. And yet always had this neurosis that, you know, something was about to happen to challenge it. Uh, and whether it was or not, sometimes it, it sort of invented it uh, and maybe even believed it. And the, the, em the Emirati government, for some reason, really is super paranoid about the possibility of dissent coming from... Um, uh, sort of Muslim Brotherhood tradition, uh, which is successful in, in elections, of course, in, in Egypt, um, shortly after the, the unrest in 2011. And this really seems to gnaw away at the, the soul of the, uh, the powerful elite in the UAE. And so they fabricated these charges, 
against 94 people they they saw or they thought they saw or even if they didn't see they pretended they saw um, some giant conspiracy which was somehow backed by a Muslim Brotherhood factions and so it served a purpose I think for the UAE authorities in terms of reassuring themselves that even if there was potential peaceful dissent they could crush it and then they used that uh, as an example and so you know the people that they arrested and convicted included academics, activists, um, human rights defenders, uh, Mohammed al Rokan, um, top constitutional law expert, um, known across the region, known across the world for his brilliant legal mind. Um, some of the people who, who were arrested in that sweep uh, and convicted were really among the, the brightest and best minds uh, in the UAE. And so I think that's partly why the, um, why the trial uh, and the case got so much international publicity. Mohammed El-Mansouri, also a great legal scholar, uh, was also uh, convicted and sentenced in that trial. Could you please elaborate it more and tell us what exactly the international community has to do to stop this illegal surveillance? Yes, so, um, you know, a... a a good friend of mine um, who I'd worked with a lot this year, uh, Al Al Siddiqui, was was from the Emirates, an activist living in exile in in England, was killed in a car crash a few months ago, and she was targeted. Um, her phone was targeted by this um, by this software, uh, which gets essentially hacks people's phones. It can um, it can turn on their microphones, turn on the the cameras in their phones without them realizing. Uh, can you know get into their messages and and really find out everything that's on the phone, and it was used against activists um, across the world, uh, not just in the Middle East but also uh, in the Middle East. And on one hand, it's new and it's scary because it's digital surveillance, um, and part of the problem about that and being modern and being so new is that there really isn't enough international regulation about who can sell this stuff, who can buy this stuff, who, who's allowed to, to use this stuff. Um, I, I'd say also, you know, that, that coming from like a, you know, a pre-internet, a, a pre-mobile phone experience, the sinister surveillance of activists isn't anything new. I mean, you know, it, it used to be done on foot, um, people used to be um, followed. They had their telephones tapped, um, their houses bugged. I mean, all of those things were possible and, and widespread uh, in certain countries before the advent of mobile phones. And so software like Pegasus, because, of course, so much of our information and so much of our lives are on our phones, um, is very scary. But But in principle, it's not really anything new. And... Eventually, legal systems caught up with, for instance, um, permission for for uh, bugging people's phones, you know, and procedures you had to go through. I think that we are just slow to catch up with the regulation um, on what sort of stuff is allowed to be to be sold and and bought and used. Um, so it's a massive problem for the moment. It really is. I 
pretty optimistic that you know it will be sorted out. But in the meantime, it's a very dangerous thing for for human rights defenders um, in the Emirates and elsewhere. One of the highest profile targets of the uh, of the Pegasus software was Ahmed Mansour, uh, who I would say is not only the best known activist uh, in the Emirates, but in in fact. I would say he's probably the most famous Emirati um, there is, which, which in itself says something about the government's PR in that it does all of this to promote itself and to promote the government. But actually, hardly anyone can name any members of the government. Um, but internationally, I think the most famous person from the Emirates is somebody who is in prison there uh, and is in prison there because of his human rights work. Uh, Ahmed Mansour won the 2015 Martin Ennels Award, which is the, about the biggest human rights defender prize there is. Uh, and so much of that PR stuff really doesn't work. You can't stop the world hearing about Pegasus attacks on Ahmed Mansour. You can't stop the world hearing about Ahmed Mansour. Uh, and so money can buy you a lot, but it really can't buy you everything. And it, and it can't buy silence of people talking about human rights activists in the Emirates. To conclude, I'm sorry there are people who are thinking about what they could do to improve the situation or have a positive impact to stop these violations. So Brian, what do you think people and the international community can do to change the situation in the country? This is a question you know, I've been asked um, for you know, 30 or more years uh, about various countries, you know, which, looks, which look uh, hopeless in terms of what can possibly ever change in that country. Um, and things really do change. You know, when I started working on human rights, the Soviet Union existed and, and apartheid South Africa um, existed and you know, much of Latin America was run by uh, military governments. And all of that has changed. And Those things change by a combination of people inside those countries um, agitating for change, often very secretly, and international pressure coming also. And international pressure now can be something really powerful and major in terms of other international big players, other governments pressuring a country, which certainly happened in the case of uh, South Africa to, to end apartheid. But it could also happen in lots of, of smaller ways too, where um, individual citizens can start talking about and writing about and complaining about uh, what's happening in the country. I mean, what's, what I think is odd and, and is an opportunity um, for those who want to make change or see change in, in the Emirates is that it's not, for most people, a closed society in that they are able to, to go there. Um, and in fact, the Emirates, of course, wants visitors. I mean, back to the example of the person that I spoke about taking up a, a teaching job there. So it, it's it's possible to go, um, and it's possible to talk publicly when you're not in the country about your experience there and about that chilling feeling of knowing that you know state security is everywhere. Um, so I think people, you know ought to be encouraged to speak up about um, the problems of the UAE. They, they ought to think twice about investing there or, or going there. I'm not, I'm not saying they, they shouldn't, but they really need to 
be fully aware of what might happen. You know, the British academic, Matthew Hedges, um, went there to, to do academic research and ended up, you know, in prison, tortured. Um, I, I knew and worked on, on the case of two Americans, uh, Kamal and Mohammed Al-Darat, who were doing business um, in, in the UAE. I think they were running a series of uh, Subway uh, franchise, the sandwich shops, uh, and they ended up um, in prison and tortured. It's not totally safe for outsiders, and people ought to be warning each other uh, about that. Thank you very much, Brian, for speaking with us for this episode and raising awareness about gross human rights violations happening today in the United Arab Emirates. Thank you very much for giving me the chance to talk about uh, human rights in the Emirates. I went there myself in 2015 and, and wrote a report for Human Rights First about the terrible situation of human rights there. Um, I've done such reports in many countries, but I've never felt the tangible fear among human rights activists who I spoke to there. Uh, it, it was very real. And I hope that, um, and I believe that the situation can change dramatically and suddenly because I've seen it in, in many other countries too. Uh, but until then, we're going to talk about and keep talking about and keep pressing around human rights issues because that's part of the process that helps make the change. So thanks very much for putting on these podcasts. Um, they're more than just interesting. I mean, they actually matter and they help with the push to change things. So thank you very much. On behalf of ECDHR, thank you for joining us and for listening to our podcasts. The next episode will be available next Friday. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our social media channels if you want to learn more about the human rights situation in the GCC countries.